for your continued support. Oh, we're being recorded. Okay. Um, and I, I assume that you're only showing uh, my face in the recording. Is that right? Yes, you're nodding. I see. Okay, that's one way to communicate. Well, hello, everyone, everyone who has arrived. Um, we are going to sit for about 30 minutes, and um, then I'm going to talk for a while. And then I'm going to invite you to ask questions or participate. Um, I, I just wanted to mention, before we get started, a, a couple of things that are upcoming, because I'm heading to the East Coast next month. So um, let's see. Oh, boy, that's not, I don't love that link. There's a better link for this. But anyway, uh, I'm going to be, excuse me, at Omega Institute uh, with Vimalasara, actually, in August, August 11th to the 13th. Really a beautiful uh, space, a uh, beautiful place um, in upstate New York. Uh, it used to be like a summer camp, and um, they've turned it into a retreat center. It's it's kind of very um, diverse in terms of the offerings. Uh, I see that they're offering an intermediate pickleball workshop, so it's not all it's not a Buddhist center, but no, it's mostly kind of yoga oriented and stuff like that. But it, they have like a great. Um, you know, it's a great campus. And uh, anyway, if you're interested in hanging out with us for for a few days, uh, please come there. We're, I'm also going to be um, doing a day long, which is going to be online to uh, um, what's called Delaware Valley Insight. So for those of you in the who know Pennsylvania, Delaware Valley is basically Philadelphia. It's going to be the event is going to be in Philadelphia. So. I found that link. <laughs> anyway, all of this is on my on my website. Um, the uh, retreat in North Carolina seems to be full. You can get on the waiting list. Uh, and if you are interested in coming to North Carolina for a week-long retreat, um, which ends on Labor Day, um, get on the um, wait list and plan on coming because there's always somebody who drops out like the day before the retreat and there's a space. I'm like... Oh, Somebody should come. And usually people on the waiting list have given up by the day before the retreat, you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, enough advertising. Um, yeah, well, let's start with the sit. And, and usually what I do is I I give guidance for a while and then I let it just fall into silence and just let people sit with their own practice. But I'll get you started with some uh you know, introductory instructions to uh, mindfulness meditation. So our starting point, and our, our you know, way we start is by silencing our phone. Thank you. Uh, and then <laughs> establishing a posture that's conducive to alertness and calm. So typically that's suggested to be upright, but you can certainly 
meditate lying down as well. And so really just establishing a stable, comfortable posture and closing your eyes or just lowering your gaze. This alone can make a kind of internal shift. In a sense, it's just the intention to be present, to meditate. Kind of gets us started. I'm sort of imagining being in a rowboat and just pushing off from the shore. You haven't started rowing yet, but you're already floating, if you will. So just letting the body settle, become still. And just feeling the breath moving through the body. And noticing too what you bring to the class tonight. What's What's up for you? Just what are you feeling now? What kind of energy do you have? Your mood? Especially an evening class kind of means that some aspect of our day probably still lingers, whether it's pleasant or something unpleasant. Just just feeling that we're not trying to fix it or control it. I've been working with the very simple approach to practice and to daily life, which is on the in-breath to open on the out-breath to release. On the in-breath, I open to whatever feelings are here, whatever energies are in the body. On the out-breath, I release tension. Soften the muscles in the body. And there's a natural settling then that happens as I I stay open, but I keep letting go with the release. And then 
tuning in more carefully to the breath. As we release more, start to settle and calm body, feeling the sensations of breath. The flow of breathing, the rhythm. We're not trying to accomplish anything, we're trying to stop thoughts or create some special mood or mind state. Just settle back and observe what's arising. natural that our mind will wander. Thoughts don't just stop because we decide to meditate. They're actually an integral part of our practice. So even as we are foregrounding the breath, We can notice the thoughts that arise. Sometimes the thoughts will fully capture our attention, we'll lose the breath. And then at a certain point, we'll wake up and realize we're thinking. And then we just start again. We're not going anywhere. We're just here. Connect again with the breath. It can be helpful, though, to also notice what those thoughts are, particularly the ones that really capture our attention. What is it that my mind is really drawn to? What am I trying to capture, to figure out, to plan or to remember, to judge, to analyze?
particularly seductive are the thoughts that have some insight where we feel like we've got some Dharma understanding. There's that tendency to think, well, I'm meditating, so if I'm thinking about Buddhism, it doesn't count. I don't have to let go of that. But really, it's all just thinking. There's nothing wrong with thinking. It's not that we're bad for thinking. But we're trying to change how we relate to thoughts, to see them more as just passing phenomena, not personal, not mine, not me. Lacking any substance or claims on truth.
in my in my uh, other classes that the regular ones I do on on my own Zoom, uh, we just meditate for twenty minutes. So it's sort of an adjustment doing thirty minutes together. I, I do I sit for longer than that in the morning on my own, but there's something about doing it online and just in this kind of void that's a little odd. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it's helpful for people. Um, we are we are a sangha, uh, even if we're not in the same place uh, together. Um, so, uh, um, I want to uh, talk about uh, the topic of of not self uh, tonight, um, which is. You know, a, a really a key Buddhist teaching and one of the things unique to, to Buddhism, uh, the way the Buddha talked about self. Um, it's something that can get very heady. And, uh, you know, when someone raises their hand in class and says, would you explain uh, not self or no self? Uh, I usually feel a little like, oh, no, here we go. And. Um, and, and yet when, when applied and reflected on skillfully, I think it's a hugely helpful concept to work with, but I think it does really require a very kind of balanced way of looking at it. And, and so, and, and in fact, to kind of say, you know what Liana said what's the talk going to be and I said it's going to be self slash not self in recovery so to, to just try to talk about not self independent of self sort of misses the point um, because self as sort of ego or identification with a, with uh, you know an idea of who you are is an important uh, aspect of our lives and can't be neglected. And, and in fact, you know, having a healthy ego and a healthy sense of self is really key to any kind of spiritual growth. And, and I think that in a way, you know, the foundation principles of the 12 steps and, and any kind of recovery program are about first rebuilding a healthy self, you know, a healthy sense of self, um, and, and an, an emotionally healthy and integrated, uh, a person, you know, where your, where your personality is integrates, uh, the different aspects of self. Right. Um, but there's also a point, particularly in the 12-step program, and particularly when we start to do inventory and face the amends process, that um, it can be helpful to have this other way of thinking about who we are and thinking about how we define ourselves and particularly uh, thinking about the thoughts 
that we have and our our past um, and all of that. I was talking to someone recently about, uh, and I think they're fairly early in recovery and that they were, um, you know, getting caught up in, in some, uh, you know, negative feelings about their past. And, you know, if you're in recovery from some kind of addiction, um, by definition, you have a messy past at least some, you know, some messiness back there. And so it's something we all all have to deal with. You know, and you can, you know, be very Buddhist about it and say, well, that's, the past is gone. Uh, there's only this present moment. But that's not really true. You know, the past is what creates the present. You know, karma is you know the accumulation of of conditioning and and events and behaviors and thoughts and so uh so we are living in the present moment we are reliving we are living the results of our past um so we can't just dismiss the past um and and nor would the certainly the 12 steps suggest that we do you know they said the you know, the so-called promises say we shall not regret the past. And even that, I think, is a bit of a, a strong claim. I still have moments when I regret things. But but the idea that uh, what, what I have done and how I have lived can be put to use, there can be value in it, That's that, I think, is, a, you know, what they're getting at in that list of things that they call the promises but let me let me talk um uh, i mean I'll, i guess i'll i will try to try to define a little bit or explain a little bit how the buddha talks about self and what what his point is when he when he points at things and says that that is not self. So the Buddha does not say that there is no self. And the, and we see in the suttas that that people at various times try to pin him down on that point. You know, are you saying that there is no self? I'm not saying that there is no self. I'm saying that your thoughts are not yourself. Your body is not yourself. Uh, your words are not yourself. Uh, your possessions are not yourself. Your family is not yourself. Well, yeah, of course. But so, so he's, he's, it, it, what we have to get at partly is how the, the Buddha says that if something is a self, then you can control it. So if your body, he says this, like if your body were, your if you owned your body and if it was a self then you would be able to control it and make it do what you want it to do and we all know like we have a certain amount a degree of control over our body i can lift my hand up and put it down i can you know i can move around fortunately i'm you know that's just because i happen to be able to move around there are other people who can't move around but you know the point is yeah we have some control over our bodies but 
I don't know if there's anybody here who who thinks I look exactly the way I want to look <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not pointing my fingers. I'm not reading anybody's mind. But, you know, yeah, and we, we wouldn't age, right? We wouldn't deteriorate. Um, no, our hair wouldn't fall out. I mean, you know, it's, maybe you'd just shave it off. I don't know. But that's that's another issue entirely. And then he says, well, so your body is not yourself because you can't control it. It's impermanent. It's not satisfactory. It's dukkha. It's not, you know, it's suffering, as he says. You know, It's bound to get sick and you know, have pain and eventually die. And so then he's like, but, and your mind also is not yourself. <laughs> you know, and he, he goes into more detail, but we can say, see like, yeah, I don't think the thoughts I w- want to think. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that weird? Like, uh, I have to read a text I got today. So, um, I, I yesterday I was talking to a young man who uh, I met uh, on the golf course last year. I guess it was last year, and uh, he's a he's an aspiring professional golfer. Very sweet young man. Uh, you know, amazing golfer. We, you know, we just got paired up one day and, and I told him what I do in terms of teaching meditation. And he was very interested in that. And so I've, I've, you know, given him some guidance from time to time. And I hadn't heard from him in a while. I heard from him recently. And he was like, I'd really like to talk to you about the mental game as they call it. Right. So we we had tea yesterday morning and I, and I actually gave him the instruction that I gave you guys tonight, which is open and release. When you're on the golf course, just open to Because he said, I want to relax. I want to learn to relax when I'm in a tournament. And so I said, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you don't want to relax when you're in a tournament. You, what you want to do is you want your body, you want to be able to soften your body, but you don't want to relax because you're you're this is a highly charged environment and you use that energy so that's why i said uh, breathing in open and feel and allow in don't fight the feelings you're having breathing out release them and so release and let tension in your body soften your bellies relax your shoulders loosen your jaw those are kind of the three key points but then I said, after, you know, I said, I said, that's just, that's enough. If you just think of that when you're on the golf course, just be aware of your breath. And as you're walking between shots, just open, feel, release, open, release. You know, that's all you need. And, and, and I didn't want to give him a whole lot more, you know, to think about. But we did, because we, we talked for a while, you know, I... told him about the problem of thoughts, right? Like when you're playing golf, have you ever noticed what thoughts you have? He said, no, I haven't. I said, well, you should notice that because your thoughts are going to influence the way you play. So he wrote me today, said, I played around yesterday and wrote down every thought that I noticed that I said to myself. I find it very interesting and vulgar at the same time. I thought that was a pretty good, yeah, 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 I've I've had some of those vulgar thoughts myself. But what he's seeing is that his thoughts are not himself. He's not controlling his thoughts, right? 
Now, and we all, anybody who meditates for any period of time discovers that. Well, it's kind of freaky in a way. It's like, what the hell? Who's running this show? You know what? You know, and this is kind of the Buddhist question. Wes Nisker has his, in his inimitable fashion, says, your mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> it's like your mind just like, you know, just it's got its own journey. So, okay, so so we see all that, you know, we see we're not in control. So that's one, that's how the Buddha approaches this. You could make another argument that that doesn't prove there's, uh, that those things are not self. But that's that's the framework that the Buddha uses. And, and I think it's a useful one. Because we get into a struggle trying to get, control these things that we're not in control of. So there we have step one, right? There's step one. I'm powerless over my mind and my body. You know, doesn't mean just as with alcohol, doesn't mean I don't have some influence over them. I can stop drinking. I have stopped drinking. I've been stopped, stopped for 38 years. But if I drink, then I'm powerless, right? So I can, I can, alter my thoughts, but I have to be mindful. I have to be awake and aware. Um, and so, so this is like this shift that we're making. We're not, uh, we're not trying to, you know, get rid of self. So this is one of the other mistakes that people get when they hear this teaching. They think, oh, I, now, now that I'm a Buddhist, I have to get rid of myself. <laughs> And then you really have a problem. But the point is that the idea of self as a lasting, permanent, self-existent, like independent entity is an illusion. And this is, you know, a point that the Buddha makes that we are not expected to take on faith. We are invited to explore that question. And, but the point being that I don't have to get rid of anything. I just have to see clearly how things are. And then I will see that this idea of a self is an illusion. And that will help me to be free of the problems that come along with thinking that there's a self and believing that there's a self. The problems that come along with believing there's, there's self, I mean, there's a long list, but to name a few of them, it's basically what I've been talking about. There's this frustration, first of all, in that I can't control this thing that I think is me. And so then there's this feedback loop that starts. I can't, you know, I am not behaving or thinking or feeling the way I think I should be. So now I'm frustrated with myself. And I'm angry with myself. Which means I'm just stuck in this internal conflict that can't be resolved and can only spiral, 
And so when we realize, even if we just realize it intellectually, cognitively, without, we don't have to have a profound insight because it is, it is a, there is a level of profound insight that's actually the breakthrough into the first stage of enlightenment, the old stream entry. But just to enter, understand it intellectually and to remember it and to see it mindfully that, oh, wait, 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 that, I'm not responsible for that thought that I, I, I can let go of that thought. It's, it's okay that I look the way I am. It's just, it's just a body. It's not me. You know, these are these feelings. They're unpleasant or they're pleasant, but they're just coming and going. They're not substantial. They don't define me. There is no definition of me. No. Well, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, what a relief, right? So the the place where this is particularly applicable and what made me think about this as a topic tonight was around the inventory process, because this is where I would say someone working a 12-step program, so that for those who don't aren't you know, familiar necessarily with every step. The fourth step in the 12th step says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. You know, and this is a point in the, the 12th step program that's very challenging. And, and, and anybody who has arrived at that point, you know, like I've worked the first three steps and my sponsor says it's time to write an inventory. You know, if you don't feel intimidated, you haven't been paying attention or, you, or you're you sort of, you know, you've forgotten your, your life. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a scary proposition. And it's mostly a scary proposition because it's a searching, fearless, moral inventory of myself. Right. And, you know, I did that shit. You know, that's me. And that's true. You know, I can't get away from that. And and for it to be effective, I need to take that on. I need to take responsibility for it. I can't. This is where we have to be very careful that we don't abuse Buddhist teachings or misuse them, and say, "Well, like I said, it's the past, and there is no self, so it's not really me." No, that's that's just you know <laughs> a way a way to try to escape responsibility. No, that was totally me. And that was myself, you know, the, uh, because as I said, there's a self and there's on, on the relative level and the relative functional level, there is a self, you know, that's why you have a driver's license and a credit card. Uh, if you have those things, you know, that you, you have a name that people call you, et cetera, you have possessions. That's the functional self. And it's, as they say, vital, you, you can't, do without it really not not as a human being if you were just an animal you could probably function without a self but so so we have to take responsibility for that and that's going to be painful no matter what i mean if again if it isn't painful then you're probably not being honest and at a certain point within that process we need to also step away and remember that this is the past 
And it isn't who I am. It doesn't define me. It's, you know, I have done unskillful things. I've probably harmed others, certainly harmed myself. But that's not me in the absolute sense. And so this, I think, is a really important balance to hold these two. To not be in in denial about our behavior, but also to be able to see it in this larger view. Because it's that view that allows compassion, self-compassion, forgiveness for ourselves. And this is one of the the beautiful and remarkable things that Buddhist meditation introduces us to, if we haven't encountered it already in our lives, that there is this capacity to, we could say, rest in awareness or, or just this observing capacity, which doesn't have it's kind of, I, I could say it's it's not really part of our personality. It's just the capacity to know and to see. And and from that place to to be able to offer compassion to ourself, right? Then it's almost as if I don't know if this even makes sense, but I'll say it, it's almost as if the not self is offering compassion to the self, you know, or the realization of not self creates the space in which there can be compassion for the self. But I think this is, this is one of the things that the Dharma can bring to the 12 steps that very specifically, I think, and we're very, really one of the valuable things and key things and unique things that the Dharma brings to the 12 steps that allows us to have this other perspective on the process so that we're not so identified with the harm, with the alcoholism. You know, we can say, I'm Kevin and I'm an alcoholic, but we don't take that on as I, who we are in some absolute sense. We understand that it's just a functional way of identifying self. But this is where, because for me, you know, one of the things that, one of the, I guess I'd say issues, you know, have with kind of Bill Wilson's approach to recovery and the 12 steps is what to me feels like an overemphasis on self, on, on, on inventory. And, and that, you know, that it starts to become burdensome, this constant, uh, you know, undermining uh, uh, of the of the self. You know, and and this is, you know, my my take is for a long time has been that you know, Bill Wilson had this uh, inflation problem, ego inflation problem, and he thought that that was just like the way all alcoholics were. So he was really into ego deflation, but the 
case, I think, is that many people need need some more ego support than don't need deflation, and so it doesn't it doesn't really work for me as a as a kind of uh, constant, you know, right in inventory every day sort of thing. And, it, and that doesn't mean that I'm not paying attention to the harm I do. That, you know, for me, certainly the tenth step, if you will, like continuing to take inventory is is part of being a, a mindfulness practitioner, right? Your mindfulness is a kind of in ongoing inventory it's paying attention to seeing what's arising in your mind and what behavior is coming is happening what's coming out of your mouth but to do that in this kind of self-critical way i think has a risk a risk to it so this capacity this this invitation that we have from the dharma to let go of identification with thoughts <laughs> with our history is is really one of the most freeing things that we we can gain through the dharma and and again it 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 needs to be held as the buddha said with a middle way in a balanced way skillfully uh and and that's you know that's easier said than done uh, you know i i like to talk about the middle way or maintaining balance as a, as a practitioner as being like walking on a tightrope and that when you watch somebody go on a tightrope they aren't just walking straight across i'm in the middle of doing going down the middle way they're tipping one way and tipping the other way and that's the way our minds are that's where our emotions are that's the way our lives are you know some days are good some days are not so good so uh, you know, some t- days I'm more I'm harder on myself. Some days I might be too easy on myself. You know, I mean, uh, you know, and the way the mind works, I, I just just to share a little story before I I think after this, I, we can open it up. But I um, I mentioned that I'm going to be teaching in Philadelphia and 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 I just got notice that I'm going to be teaching at the Shambhala Center in Philadelphia, where I have taught before. And it's on Sansom Street in Philadelphia. And Sansom, at at the end of the block that the Shambhala Center is on, there used to be a hippie clothing store called Ward's Folly. And I worked there in 1969. And one day, the kind person who I was dating at the time brought me a sandwich she did not know that I, at that time, was tremendously averse to rye bread. And I threw that sandwich to express my aversion. And when I was, when they said, when they told me I was going to be at the Shambhala Center, I immediately thought of Ward's Folly and that sandwich. And I felt bad, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, God, I regret the past, you know? What was, you know, oh, you know, and and it's painful, right? When we when those things come up for us, those moments, those really like just really that's what an asshole, right? Like what the, you know, and that was 1969, you know, I, I don't have to carry that with me. I'm not, I don't think I ever made amends about it, though. I wish I, I would be, I would happily make amends for that today. Uh, if I could track down that wonderful person, but uh, 
but you know there you go and it was like okay there it is okay whatever so uh, you know that was i got tipped a little bit <laughs> with that one right and okay come back yeah but um you know this was the process right this is our this is our work holding self and not self and uh being kind uh, to both the self and the not self and and holding them wisely uh, so you know i th i think i'm going to leave it at that um and just open it up and see if there are any thoughts or questions and see if yeah i'd like to hear from you guys and um you know we don't have a specific end time but uh kind of aiming at uh 8:45 here in california so that gives us about uh 20 little over 20 minutes so i think that's enough time for us well let's see how it goes if if there's a lot of questions we can always stretch it out so so any any uh, i i have to i, I am expecting <laughs> tonight 